Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer here with you. Thanks for joining us. This is week 32. Week 32, uh, the week for August 7th through August 13th. We are reading through the New Testament. We are in 2 Corinthians, uh, plugging away through uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the second one uh, that we have in Scripture, uh, chapters 7 through 11 uh, this week. So I hope you're enjoying reading through uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. It's really a fascinating letter where we really see the heart of the Apostle Paul, his ministry, his life, his his suffering, but also his compassion and his concern uh, for the Corinthians and really what drives him. So it's, it's a really helpful letter to see what drives the Apostle Paul. What's the heartbeat of this, this man? What makes him tick? And I think that that's the wonderful thing about this letter. So we're reading here, Paul Wright is, is writing to the Corinthians, um, and we're here in chapters 7 through 11, right? So we're wrapping up that, that first big part, in a sense, where we're, now we're, we're going to talk about Paul's, he's defending his ministry, yeah, where he's going to talk about the collection for the believers in Jerusalem in chapters 8 and 9, and then beginning in chapter 10, he begins speaking again, defending his apostleship, defending himself against these people who were false apostles. Just as in the Old Testament, there had been false prophets. So in the New Testament, there were false apostles, people claiming false apostolic authority to try to go around and tell people what the true gospel of Jesus Christ was. And the apostle Paul defends his ministry, not uh, for selfish reasons, uh, but because of his concern for the gospel of Christ and for the, 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 the believers there in Corinth and his concern for them. So let's walk through some stuff here now as we think through what can we learn from 2 Corinthians chapter 7 through 11. I want to keep reading through Matthew Henry, using him as a, a helpful guide. Matthew Henry was a is a very famous old commentator, an old writer. He was a pastor, and you can find his stuff online uh, probably very easily. Very famous, has a whole commentary on the Bible. Also has a helpful thing uh, about how to pray. Um, if you were to type in a Google Matthew Henry prayer, you probably should bring you to a website uh, probably fairly quickly. Um, that's in, There's an entire website dedicated to walking you through Matthew Henry's method to teach you how to pray. It's actually very helpful, um, I think. So uh, Matthew Henry, a uh, very uh, respected, uh, solid Christian writer and uh, teaching us about what we can understand here from, from 2 Corinthians. Well, Paul opens up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and he's, he's talked about the fact that we are the temple of the living God. He's called these people uh, back to Christ and talked about how we've received this ministry of reconciliation. And now he's once again calling the Corinthians again to be reconciled back to God. And then he opens it in chapter 7, verse 1, and says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And Matthew Henry writes this about these verses. He says this, these verses contain a double exhortation. And I want to talk to you about the first exhortation he talks about. And he says that it's calling us to make a progress in holiness or to perfect holiness in the fear of God. 
This exhortation is given with most tender affection to those who were dearly beloved and enforced by strong arguments. Even the consideration of those exceedingly great and precious promises which were mentioned in the former chapter and which the Corinthians had an interest in and a title to. The promises of God are strong inducements to sanctification in both branches thereof. Namely, first, the dying unto sin or mortifying our lusts and corruptions. We must cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit. Sin is filthiness, and there are defilements of body and mind. There are sins of the flesh that are committed with the body, and sins of the spirit, spiritual wickednesses. And we must cleanse ourselves from the filthiness of both, for God is to be glorified both body and soul. He also says, secondly, there's this living unto righteousness and holiness. If we hope God is our Father, we must endeavor to be partakers of His holiness, to be holy as He is holy, and perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. We must be still perfecting holiness and not be contented with sincerity, which is our gospel perfection, without aiming at sinless perfection, though we shall always come short of it while we are in this world. And this we must do in the fear of God, which is the root and principle of all religion, and there is no holiness without it. Note, faith and hope in the promises of God must not destroy our fear of God, who taketh pleasure in those that fear him and hope in his mercy. That is very helpful, isn't it? Because what we're talking about, the fact is that uh, Paul is calling these believers now in light of who God is, in light of his promises and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Now, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement. And notice he says a body and spirit, not simply the spirit or not simply the body, but both body and spirit, because Jesus has bought us with his blood. He's bought our bodies and he's bought our souls. Therefore, all of us, every part of us, should be dedicated to his service. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, every filthy, dirty thing, and let us bring holiness to completion, as he says, in the fear of God. And I like what Matthew Henry reminds us. Faith and hope in the promises of God must not destroy our fear of God. We must always remember that, shouldn't we? Sometimes we think, we can err one way or the other. We can have too much of fear where in the sense in which our fear is that whereby we are so, just so scared of God that we don't think he loves us or maybe we, we doubt his concern for us. And that's not the appropriate kind of fear we're supposed to have because we don't have faith and hope in his promises. But on the other hand, we can be so presumptuous that we think it's faith and hope, but we're actually not respecting and reverencing and fearing God the way that we should. But we we need to bring both together, faith, hope, and fear, because an appropriate fear and reverence towards God as our Heavenly Father will also bring about a true faith and a confidence and a hope in His promises to us, that He will never forget us, He will never leave us, He will never forsake us. And therefore, both of these elements, cleansing, but also having fear and a, a wonderful fear, looking to God and, and bringing holiness to completion, to perfection, always aiming to obey God as, as, we, as we want to. We want to obey all of his commands if we can. We know we won't be able to in this life, but we always aim that way. And uh, when we fail, which we will, we always trust in his grace and in his mercy to cover us. Well, he calls them to 
repentance. But then eventually beginning in chapter 8, he begins calling them now and talks about this offering he's asking these this church to give. And he wants them to uh, to be generous in their, their money and in their resources to share with other churches, uh, with the churches particularly in Jerusalem, those who do not have um, the resources to take care of themselves because we're all part of the Christian family. We're all part of the church, uh, this new spiritual family in Jesus Christ. And so Paul here is trying to stir up these Corinthians to the work of giving uh, and of, of giving of themselves, their money, their resources for the sake of their brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, he says this in verse 8, he says uh, of chapter 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So Matthew Henry has some thoughts here um, upon this section, particularly 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 7 through 15 here. He says, In these verses, the apostle uses several cogent arguments to stir up the Corinthians to this good work of charity. Uh, first of all, Matthew Henry says, He urges upon them the consideration of their eminence in other gifts and graces and would have them excel in this of charity also. That's for verse uh, 7. But then, secondly, he says this, which we read here in these verses here, another argument is taken from the consideration of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The best arguments for Christian duties are those that are taken from the love of Christ that constraineth us. The example of the churches of Macedonia was such as the Corinthians should imitate But the example of our Lord Jesus Christ should have much greater influence. And you know, saith the apostle, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich as being being God, equal in power and glory with the Father, rich in all the glory and blessedness of the upper world, yet for your sakes he became poor. Not only did become man for us, but became poor also. He was born in poor circumstances, lived a poor life, and died in poverty. And this was for our sakes, that we thereby might be made rich, rich in the love and favor of God, rich in the blessings and promises of the new covenant, rich in the hopes of eternal life, being heirs of the kingdom. This is a good reason why we should be charitable to the poor out of what we have, because we ourselves live upon the charity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that right there. I think is a very helpful reminder to us of for all of us in general, we could apply it generally, I suppose, to a, a general consideration of others, that Jesus Christ became poor for us. And so we can apply that generally as we help people, our neighbors, maybe. Um, it doesn't have to be money. It could be uh, acts of kindness, I suppose. It could be any number of ways that we could apply this to those in need. Um, and it can particularly be applied, as Paul does, it seems here, for, for, to the sake of, uh, of money giving uh, or resources. Um, we do that as a church, right? We give money um, 
uh, sometimes to people in need, but also we give it to uh, maybe missionaries who, who could use it. And we're trying to share it, to share our abundance with others, share what we have with others for the sake of the gospel. And we're reminded in this instance that we are uh, imitating the Lord Jesus Christ. As we remember also, though, we're not simply imitating him, but we're motivated by it. Because as Matthew Henry points out, as Paul is arguing, we ourselves live upon the charity of Jesus Christ. And so if Jesus Christ loved us like this, if Christ, who was rich in himself, became poor for our sakes, well, shouldn't we also be willing to give of ourselves and of our resources, of our time, of our money, of our efforts, of our love, of our attention, of our focus for others? That's, that's what Paul is getting at here, and that's what the Lord Jesus' illustration uh, reminds us of, and that's what Paul here is, is pulling at. A few couple of other arguments, though, that he gives, which we won't go into, but he, he gives another argument is taken from their good purposes and their forwardness to begin uh, this good work. And lastly, another argument, is, he says, fourthly, is taken uh, from the discrimination which the divine providence makes in the distribution of the things of this world and the mutability of human affairs. What he's getting at is, listen, right now in God's providence, you guys have been blessed. And so therefore, be willing to share. We, we sometimes, uh, you know, you think about it right now, um, we sometimes are blessed and we are able to give out of the blessing that God's given to us. Other times we may be in need and we may be the recipients of the blessing instead of the blessers ourselves. Uh, the point is, is, is that wherever we find ourselves, we need to be considering the grace of Jesus Christ and the, and the, the place that he's put us in so that we're ready to do this good work of giving of ourselves, of whatever we have for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his people. Well, Paul continues in chapter 9, wraps up his section about giving there, uh, talks about how God loves a cheerful giver. Before then, in chapter 10, he turns his attention back again to these false apostles. And, and there's there's kind of a disjunction here between chapter 10 and what follows and what's gone before in 2 Corinthians. And there's debate about what exactly this means. Was this a letter that was tacked on at the end of this? Or what's the relationship? We could go into details about that, but well, I'll let you do your own research there. But Paul opens up in chapter 10, verse 1, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And so what he's, he's, he is now going to talk to them and say, listen, these false apostles who are showing up, um, you should not be following them. Because remember, these people are saying, Paul, you're not a real apostle. Uh, Paul, uh, Paul's weak, right? These, uh, Paul is, uh, doesn't um, present himself maybe as what we think he, he should uh, Paul begins in in chapter seven or chapter ten, verse seven. He says, "Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening to you with my letters." For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. 
Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Matthew Henry has these things to say, uh, particularly, uh, I believe, about verse uh, 7. But he, he writes this, In these verses, the apostle proceeds to reason the case with the Corinthians in opposition to those who despised him, judged him, and spoke hardly of him. Do you, says he, look on things after the outward appearance? Is this a fit measure or rule to make an estimate of things or persons by, and to judge between me and my adversaries? In outward appearance, Paul was mean and despicable with some. He did not make a figure, as perhaps some of his competitors might do. But this was a false rule to make a judgment by. It should seem that some boasted mighty things of themselves and made a fair show. But there are often false appearances. A man may seem to be learned who has not learned Christ and appear virtuous when he has not a principle of grace in his heart. However, the apostle asserts two things of himself. And the one we're going to look at here is his relation to Christ. If any man trusts to himself that he is Christ, even so are we Christ. It would seem by this that Paul's adversaries boasted of their relation to Christ as his ministers and servants. Now the apostle reasons thus with the Corinthians. Suppose it to be so, allowing what they say to be true, and let us observe that in fair arguing we should allow all that may be reasonably granted and should not think it impossible, but those who differ from us very much may yet belong to Christ as well as we. Allowing them, might the apostle say what they boast of, yet they ought also to allow this to us, that we also are Christ. Matthew Henry writes this, Note 1. We must not, by the most charitable allowances we make to others who differ from us, cut ourselves off from Christ, nor deny our relation to him. For 2. There is room in Christ for many, and those who differ much from one another may yet be one in him. It would help to heal the differences that are among us if we were to remember that, how confident soever we may be that we belong to Christ, yet at the same time we must allow that those who differ from us may belong to Christ too, and therefore should be treated accordingly. We must not think that we are the people and that none belong to Christ but ourselves. This we may plead for ourselves against those who judge us and despise us that, how weak soever we are, yet as they are Christ, so we are. We profess the same faith, we walk by the same rule, we build upon the same foundation, and hope for the same inheritance. Now Matthew Henry is pulling from that, that aspect there that these, these apostles were saying that Paul wasn't belonging to Christ and whatever, and Paul is saying, no, listen, uh, we belong to Christ. Um, and and uh, what does he say in verse 7? He says, if anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. And what Matthew Henry is pulling from that is this overall principle that we need to be charitable uh, towards other people. We may think that we are right in what we believe about Jesus Christ, um, right? Uh, particularly, you know, our own denominational convictions, whether we are a Baptist or a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Methodist or whatever. We should uh, be willing to have those convictions, but we also must be careful that we don't think that we are the only people who have any relationship to Jesus Christ. Um, that's what Matthew Henry says. We must not think that we are the people and that none belong to Christ but ourselves. 
So while on the one hand, we want to hold our convictions firmly, uh, to believe uh, what the Bible, we believe it teaches about various uh, matters uh, relating to the church's life or to even important things, uh, we, we also don't want to be so narrow that we think that we are the only people who are Christ, right? We believe there are other Christians who uh, differ from us or who have um, differences that we may feel very strongly about. But if they are confessing and believing in the triune God of the scriptures and they're trusting in his son's work for salvation and they are believing the basic essentials of the Christian faith, we must remember that they have a relationship to Christ just as much as we um, and that when Matthew Henry is saying, listen, we need to, we need to be remembering that these false apostles were, were very uncharitable to the apostle Paul of all people. And, uh, we, we do well also to be charitable to those around us. Lastly here, uh, I want to read from, uh, so Paul here continues defending his ministry. And then he talks about the false apostles before in the latter part of chapter 11, talking about his sufferings as an apostle, right? So Paul here is defending it, and he opens up in chapter 22. uh, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. And he continues on and on and on. And Matthew Henry has this to say about this section of scripture where Paul is defending his ministry, and he, he writes this. He chiefly insists upon this, that he had been an extraordinary sufferer for Christ. And this was what he gloried in, or rather he gloried in the grace of God that had enabled him to be more abundant in labors and to endure very great sufferings, such as stripes above measure, frequent imprisonments, and often the dangers of death. Note, when the apostle would prove himself an extraordinary minister, he proves that he had been an extraordinary sufferer. Paul was the apostle of the Gentiles and for that reason was hated of the Jews. They did all they could against him, and among the Gentiles also he met with hard usage. Bonds and imprisonments were familiar to him. Never was the most notorious malefactor more frequently in the hands of public justice than Paul was for righteousness' sake. The jail and the whipping post and all other hard usages of those who are accounted the worst of men were what he was accustomed to. As to the Jews, whenever he fell into their hands, they never spared him. Five times he fell under their lash and received forty stripes save one. Forty stripes was the utmost their law allowed, Deuteronomy 25, verse 3. But it was usual with them that they might not exceed to abate one at least of that number. And to have the abatement of one only was all the favor that that ever Paul received from them. The Gentiles were not tied up to that moderation, and among them he was thrice beaten with rods, of which we may suppose once was at Philippi. Once he was stoned in a popular tumult and was taken up for dead. He says that thrice he suffered shipwreck, and we may believe him, though the sacred history gives us a relation of but one. A night and a day he had been in the deep, in some deep dungeon or other, shut up as a prisoner. Thus he was all his days a constant professor. Perhaps perhaps scarcely a year of his life after his conversion passed without suffering some hardship or other for his religion. Yet this was not all. For wherever he went, he went in perils. He was exposed to perils of all sorts. If he journeyed by land or voyaged by sea, he was in perils of robbers or enemies of some sort. The Jews, his own countrymen, sought to kill him or do him a mischief. The heathen to whom he was sent were not more kind to him, for among them he was in peril. 
If he was in the city or in the wilderness, still he was in peril. He was in peril not only among avowed enemies, but among those also who called themselves brethren, who were false brethren. Besides all this, he had great weariness and painfulness in his ministerial labors, and these are things that will come into account shortly, and people will be reckoned with for all the care and pains of their ministers concerning them. Paul was a stranger to wealth and plenty, power and pleasure, preferment and ease. He was in watchings often and exposed to hunger and thirst. In fastings often, it may be out of necessity and endured cold and nakedness. Thus was he who was one of the greatest blessings of the age, used as if he had been the burden of the earth and the plague of his generation. And yet this is not all, for as an apostle the care of all the churches lay on him. He mentions this last, as if this lay the heaviest upon him, and as if he could better bear all the persecutions of his enemies than the scandals that were to be found in the churches he had the oversight of. Who is weak, and am I, and I am not weak? Who is offended, and I burn not? There was not a weak Christian with whom he did not sympathize, nor anyone scandalized, but he was affected therewith. See what little reason we have to be in love with the pomp and plenty of this world, when this blessed apostle, one of the blessed of men that ever lived excepting Jesus Christ, felt so much hardship in it. Nor was he ashamed of all this, but on the contrary, it was what he accounted his honor, and therefore much against the grain as it was with him to glory. Yet, says he, if I must needs glory, if my adversaries will oblige me to it in my own necessary vindication, I will glory in these my infirmities. Note, sufferings for righteousness' sake will, the most of anything, redound to our honor. And that is Matthew Henry, again, reminding us of the sufferings. And I like the fact that he points out that Christ, that Paul highlights his extraordinary nature as an apostle of Christ, not by all of the seeming successes he had, but by the greatness of his suffering for the gospel of Christ. That is not the way we normally would think. We would have thought Paul would be saying, listen, I planted all these churches. I led this many number of people to the Lord. Just last week, I did this, and I baptized this number of people, and and here's the amount of books I've read this past year, and I've written letters to all these different churches. I've talked to all these different people. I've sent all these pastors and Timothy and Titus and all these other guys to all these other churches. I did all these things, and maybe those things, right, we would typically want to use to argue for the greatness of our ministry or to prove the exceptionalness of God's work through us. But what does Paul do? Paul does something that is the total opposite. He highlights the depth of his suffering for the sake of Christ. He highlights shipwrecks, being beaten, being imprisoned, uh, suffering from false brethren, and the care and the burden of all the churches weighing down upon him. That's what he highlights to prove and to... uh, highlight his his apostolic ministry. It's such a different way than the way we think, but yet Paul says, I glory in these things. It's not that Paul is depressed about any of these things, by the way. Paul is not beating himself up by listing this, but what does he say? He says, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. So Paul here is boasting, glorying in these things. He's highlighting them as, as in a sense, it's almost like Paul takes these things and almost wears them as a badge of honor. 
He will say later on, or he'll say in the, the book of Galatians, that I bear in my own body the marks of Jesus Christ. We could see why Paul earlier in 2 Corinthians had said, I carry around in my body the dying of Jesus Christ. You see, for Paul, the gospel was always about the cross and the resurrection. It wasn't simply about success stories, about what we might think today, but it was also about the dying of the old man, but the raising of the new man. It was about God working through weakness, through the jars of clay. And that's the amazing thing for us, is that God also works through us, jars of clay that we are, weak, frail in ourselves, and yet, like Paul, chosen, elected instruments, jars of clay that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ to carry his name to those around us. Well, I hope this has been encouraging to you. I know this is a shorter one, but I hope it's encouraging to you as we've walked through 2 Corinthians. We're gonna, we got two more chapters next week, um, and then we begin the book of Galatians, Galatians next week. Thank you for listening to this. Keep reading uh, the New Testament. Hopefully it's been encouraging to you. I really hope that this podcast um, helps you to meditate upon what you're reading and helps you grow in your Christian faith and, and also in, in just understanding about um, more of what, what God is saying to us as we, we listen to the Bible, but also now as we listen to uh, other people teach us and remind us about what the Bible is all about. So I hope it's been encouraging to you. I really appreciate you listening to this. Take care and God bless.